Uh, take your Bibles, please. Uh, we'll be in the book of Ruth again today as we're in the middle of a series on Ruth. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1, 6 through 14. And if you need a church Bible, a pew Bible, there should be one close to you. And you can find that on page 222. Page 222. Yeah, many years ago, and you may have seen this as well, uh, floating around on the interwebs, you know. Um, there was a video that came out, and it was actually a Chick-fil-A training video. And, and the name of the video was, Every Life Has a Story. And so it begins with showing people just in a store, a normal store, normal business hours, people in and out, and the camera's kind of going through, and in each person it would stop and there would be a caption that popped up that showed a little bit about what was going on in that person's life. So the first person who's at the counter, and he's just ordering, it's like every, everything's still going on, and there's an invisible camera going around, and this guy's ordering, and a caption pops up that says, he was just laid off, and he needs to figure out how he's going to care for his family. As you go through the store, there's a, there's a couple coming in the door, and, and there's an older gentleman and his wife, and they're looking up at the menu, and over him it says, after years of fighting, he is now cancer-free. Uh, it goes to a single mother. She has two children sitting there with her. And it says that she's a single mom. She's struggling to make ends meet. Probably the saddest one is a little girl, cute little girl, sweet, innocent. And it says her mom died during childbirth and her dad blames her. Another one shows a husband uh, or a wife sitting at a table by herself. And it says today would have been her 50th anniversary. Her husband died last month. There's a girl at the counter. It says she worked hard through high school and she's been accepted to the, to the college of her dreams. Another one, his only son was recently deployed to an overseas war zone. Every life has a story. The caption underneath the video is, every life has a story if we only bothered to read it. Every life does have a story. So today we're going to read the life of another story of a woman and her remarkable story where she found hope. Where she found hope. Let us read from Ruth 1, 6-14. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to, your, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? 
Would you therefore remain, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of it. How it, it, it penetrates our hearts and lives. And how it shows us where hope is. Where hope is found in Christ Jesus. So let us see that this morning here. And let us rejoice in its truth. As we consider this story of hope and redemption. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we walk through this text today, we're going to see how no matter what the situation we're in, we have hope in the living God. And so we're going to see unfold today uh, uh, that aspect, and we're going to look at, the, number one, the hope in the crushing reality of life. And the second thing we're going to see is, is the choice of remaining or returning. And then finally, we're going to have an application point that will drive us to embrace the call to live by faith. So let's consider, first of all, hope in the crushing reality of life. If you remember from last week, uh, Naomi her, and her husband and her two sons had turned away from the house of bread and the land of promise and favor to a pagan land. They ran to Moab. Now she and her daughters-in-law were all alone. What happened? They were alone in the midst of a nightmare. They had each buried their husbands. So not only had Naomi buried her husband, she had buried her two sons as well. Filled with grief, they had no influence, no notoriety, no standing in the community, little if any money, no children, and seemingly no hope. I want you to think about their times for just a moment. There's no social security for the retired or widowed in this time. Uh, there was no welfare for those who were steeped in poverty. There was no employment agency specializing in the careers of women. And so women in this day were largely dependent upon men, their husbands, their sons, uh, their fathers. And those without male support generally lived in poverty, low poverty, scraping by through any means possible that they could get, to get through. And more than this, and I think about this, Naomi was in a foreign land where there was no church. So here we have Naomi and these ladies, and they're desperate, and they're troubled. But as we come to verse 6, we can see the, the sense of the story is beginning to change. We're, we're getting ready to see something here. It's about ready to shift. And so one day, out of somewhere, by someone, out of nowhere, the news was overheard. I am had visited with his people and had given them food. And the news was not that the weather had changed, that the crop sowing conditions were good, or that this, they were starting to grow even there in, in Bethlehem. But all this was obviously true. But instead, the news conveyed to her was that the Lord had acted to 
end the famine. It's important to see that. Why is that? Well, one commentator says rightly so. It is the Lord, not the grocer, who puts food on the shelf. So the Lord had turned away his, his, his time of testing for Israel at this point. It's important to remember that the Lord is always and always will be our hope in the crushing realities of life. Jesus himself said these words. He said this, In the world you will have tribulation. It is a reality that we all face in various and sundry ways. We have tribulations, we have troubles, we have hardships. Some of those may come through sin, as we see here in this text, or from the generally brokenness of living in this fallen and cursed world. However, we see here that the Lord had come to aid His people. And it was a herald of hope to Naomi. The real truth is is that the Lord never will nor has ever stopped coming to the aid of His people. It may not come in the way or the timing that we expect, but over and over again in Scripture, the Lord shows His love to us. And He reminds us of this truth. In the book of Genesis... We see this. In the founding of the land, uh, here even we see this. In the Psalms and the prophets, the New Testament even says that the Lord visits His people. But there is nothing so more important than perhaps this verse that Zechariah proclaims. Listen. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. All throughout the Scripture, the Lord has visited us. The Lord has visited us. The Lord God has visited us. But here in this passage, it tells us something greater. That God has visited us through His Son, Jesus. Even when Jesus speaks of tribulation in the verse that I just read to you, be reminded of the bookends. This is the the full verse in John. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus came to give His life for us that we may be rescued from sin. And therefore, rescued from the tragedy, rescued from the tribulation. And furthermore, He tells us, I will come again. In the meantime, What hope do we have? What peace can we attain? How might our broken or troubled hearts be mended? Well, listen. The rumors are out there. It's being talked about all around. Jesus has come. And He will come again. So in Him, my friends, we have hope. We have peace And so the question is, is will you trust in His great love for you? Will you trust in His great love and and the crushing reality of this world that we live in? In this question, we see that that this unbelievable and incredible truth leaves us with a choice. For Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, they had the choice of remaining in Moab or returning to the land where the house of bread was. 
So let's consider our second point. In verse 6, and I know we haven't gotten very far in the text, but here in verse 6, we are introduced to a key theme of this chapter. We are introduced to the Hebrew word shuv. Shuv. It means to return, to turn back, to bring back, to turn away from, to abandon. So we see this word used here, and get this, it is used in verses 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 21, and 22. Does that tell you how important this word is to this this chapter? It's a theme here, right? And it's used 11 times. Sometimes in slight variations in the the English translation translation that you may not catch if, if you knew how to read Hebrew, you would see it fully. The word as used in these uh, text points us to the central theme here of returning to the Lord. That's what he's trying to get us to see here. Will she return to the Lord? Who will return to the Lord in the passage? We see it is used this way in Jeremiah 15 where the covenant God promises to restore his people if they repent. We see it also in Ezekiel 14, 18, and 32 where the covenant God commands His people to repent. It is obvious then, as we see this theme unfold, that it is the Lord who is working in the heart of Naomi to turn her back to Him. The text is clear. Naomi's choice was was clear as well. In verse 7, she sets out to return to the land of Judah. He has turned her heart toward home. And as long as she has been in Moab, you have to understand, as long as she's been there, it's still, it's truly not her home as a child of God. It's not. So she turns. She repents. And she begins her return home to Israel from, you know, it's been, you know, From the point where her husband died, it looks like it's been 10 years. We don't know if that just means 10 years she's been there or over 10 years at this point. But think about that. At least a decade she's been gone and now she's returning home. And where is she returning to? Think Old Testament like. She's returning to the place where God tabernacles among his people. So she's returning to the Father. And you can imagine as she's traveling, she's thinking about all of that. She's thinking about the land. She's thinking about the place where God resides. Uh, she's, she's thinking about the people who live there. Um, she's maybe even remembering more and more of the word of God and the reality of the situation before them. Whatever the case may be, Naomi apparently begins to have second thoughts about her daughters-in-law returning with her. And so in verse 8, she says, and it's, to be honest with you, it's difficult not to read this in the sense of sincere love on her part. I mean, it just, all the commentators point out that she's just out of love saying these things. It's hit her. She says, go, return, each of you to your mother's house. So why did she do that? Why did it hit her so, so strongly to do that for her daughters-in-law? Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke gives great insight on this passage. Listen to what he says. She forces her daughters-in-law to own up to the hard reality. They have no future with her. According to the Israelite law of Liverite marriage of Deuteronomy 25, 
other sons or close relatives of hers should marry the childless widows and use their seed to preserve the decreased relative's name and land inheritance. But Naomi considers herself too old to bear and raise sons to marry them. And she has little hope that a relative will jeopardize his fame and fortune by siring sons, neither bearing his name nor adding to his own property. The only sensible thing, she insists, is that they return to Moab. So looked at in this way, I mean, think about it. It sets up the rest of the story because she's basically saying nobody's going to marry you. But then we, we kind of know the rest of the story. But let's not get too, hard, too far ahead of ourselves here. Um, Walkie grants us another insight here with sobering dimensions. And I think he nails it. Listen to this. He says, Either consciously or unconsciously, she is testing their covenant fidelity. Let me say that again. Either consciously or unconsciously, she is testing their covenant fidelity. With all the appearance in the text pointing to the fact that she is placing her interest above her own and not just being a bad evangelist here, okay? She's not being a bad evangelist here. In her pleading, they were being tested to see if they would rather turn back to Moab or turn to the Lord and trust in Him. We see here in verse 14 that after they lifted up their voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Verse 15 notes that she left. She went back to Moab. However, Ruth clings to her. We'll look more specifically at Ruth's clinging next week, but what I want you to think about here is is in the dialogue that Naomi goes through with these ladies, there's a choice. There's a choice to be made here. Think of it this way. Both of these ladies were young. Okay? Orpah was presumably no more than in the mid-twenties. And it's possible that Ruth, I think she, it appears to me she's the younger one here. So she would be younger than that. So if we have Orpah in her mid-twenties, she basically has her whole life ahead of her. It's possible for her to still have children. So Ferguson lays out the paradigm for us. This is what he says. Her choice was this. Yahweh plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus Yahweh and Moab. Yahweh plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus Yahweh and Moab. In this choice, she chooses the familiar, the temporal, the visible. She opts for the world's wisdom and turns away from the wisdom of God. Sarah Ival adds this. She says, and with such a choice, she walks off the pages of Scripture and remains on the outside of the promised land for all eternity. Sobering, isn't it? Ruth, however, by the grace of God, chooses a different path. The path to the promised land, the path to hope. And in cleaning to Naomi, next week we'll see this so strongly that her choice is more than clinging on to Naomi. It is clinging to the living God. So what of you? There is a choice before us all. What hope do we cling to? 
What love do we trust? This brings us to our application point. Point number three, to embrace the call to live by faith. All of us have a story. All of us have a choice to make. A big choice. The most important choice of all. Orpah tested the limit and chose to live by sight and not by faith. All of us here are faced with similar choices as Orpah and, and Ruth. We can either live in the land of faithfulness to the true and living God, or we can follow the ways of the world's wisdom and never enter eternal rest with Jesus Christ. We can live by faith, or we can live by sight. And so the question is, is have you made that choice to cling on to Jesus, to cling to Him, and to never let go of the true and living God? If you have not, today you have heard of the great love of God for you, that He sent His Son Jesus to rescue you from sin, to deliver you from tragedy and tribulation. Now let me tell you something here if you're skeptical about this. And I, and I get it. I understand it. Sometimes I read the pages of Scripture and I think, that seems outlandish. <laughs> Until I really begin to think about how great and glorious our God is. There is no other hope. There's no other hope. You can search. You can read. You can seek. But you will find no answers to the true mysteries of life, to the mystery of sin and the mystery of death. There's all kinds of things taught. There's all kinds of things uh, considered. But here you find truth, truth in Jesus, who was, by the way, a true historical figure. I know at Easter time, every, every year you'll see it. Wait, this Easter, they'll say, did Jesus really live? Folks, I think there's more evidence for him than there is George Washington. I'm just telling you, okay? We don't think that way, but it's true. He lived and he breathed. And the things that he said were of life. And, and when he was crucified and was put in the grave, and when he rose from the dead, the Scripture tells us that 500 people saw him. And over and over again, the, the New Testament writers will say, give, give specific names, specific places, specific situations. And it's almost as though they're saying, please go talk to these people. They saw him. There is no doubt that this Jesus lived. And there is no doubt that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of gods. He is our only hope. So what I would appeal to you today is, is to think about that, to consider that, and to cling to Him. Now, if you have trusted in Jesus, let me remind you of this. He's clinging to you. He was always clinging to you. <laughs> He is clinging to you and He'll never let you go. So in His grip, are you trusting Him in the tragedies and tribulations that you are currently seeing around you? Are you trusting Him in the tragedies and tribulations that you are facing personally? 
Listen, we're reminded in 1 Peter, 1 Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. I think one of the most difficult lessons that God can teach us is that hardship can be good. Hardship can be good. Pleasant things are not the sole measure of the Lord's interest for us. And so He uses hardship to mold us into what He desires us to be and how He desires us to, as the text says, share in Christ's sufferings for His glory. It's a little mysterious, but it's incredibly great for our heart and souls. None of His people are immune because He uses those hardships to mold us into the image of His Son, Jesus. Are you thankful then for the times of famine and barrenness as well as the times when He visits His blessings? You know, the reality is this, and I don't know if you're like me or not, but I'll tell you this, and I wonder sometimes if this is why the Lord doesn't use these things more acutely in our lives. But when, but when everything is going well for me, when everything is going great, and everything is rosy, and I'm dancing through the fields, and I'm looking at the birds, and I'm seeing the blue sky, and all those things, lots of times I'll forget the Lord. Because it's all good. You see what I'm saying? It's all good. It's all good. It's all right. But, you know, even in TV shows, I've used this illustration before, but I still think it's one of the funniest things ever, okay? Back when I was a Star Trek really huge fan, back when I was a young man, there's this one scene I'll never forget. The captain of the Enterprise crashes on a planet, and the first thing when the hatch opens up, he says, it's my God. Why is that funny? Because Gene Roddenberry did not believe in God. Do you get it? The Avengers, Captain America standing there and all the people disappearing in that last, not the last movie, but the second to the last movie. And he says, my God. And I'm like, is he talking to Thor? See, we all know, don't we? We all know. How easy it is to lose sight of the gospel. How easy it is to lose sight of the love of God. Whether in good times or bad times. Now let me give you a strong application here. Okay? Not only do we trust to believe. But my friends, I'm telling you. That's why he gathers his people together every week to worship. I asked you when we gathered, why are you here? You are here to be reminded of who God is. Because it's hard. Because it's, it's, it's bad. It's awful. Sometimes it's downright heart-wrenching to live in this world. And even when it's not heart-wrenching, when you're dancing through the lilies, you forget. God gathers His people together to worship Him, to remind them of how good He is. The promises He's made. The glory of His great and glorious Son. And He died for you. And if you're a believer in Him, He will not let you go.
brothers and sisters in Christ. As the writer of Hebrews would say, let us not neglect the gathering together. Let us not neglect that. That we would be fed. That we would be nourished. That we would be encouraged in all things Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy to us. I ask that you would pour your blessings down upon us of your love. That you would indeed be the hope of the crushing reality of the life that we live in. That our choice would be true and secure to live by faith and not by sight. Oh, Father. By the power of your Spirit, may it please you that we pray this. And may you love us by answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.